Good morning. Uh, While your pastor is 30,000 feet in the air, let me remind you about how much he cares about you and how much he loves everybody that's in this room right now. Um, He doesn't often um, get that praise, but he does, and I want to make sure you know it. Um, Trent and Pam are on their way to Mexico to take a vacation. Uh, He says it's to relax, uh, but the real reason is that today's message is just a little bit controversial and kind of heavy, and he wanted me to preach it. Um, Thanks, Trent. Uh, Anyway, today we're going to talk about human sacrifice. So... Grab your cord of firewood and your knife and your torch and come on this journey with me. It's going to be fun. Now, I won't say that human sacrifice has been common throughout history, but it certainly hasn't always been taboo or illegal. In fact, many cultures throughout history practiced the regular ritual killing of other humans. In ancient days, human sacrifice, sometimes called ritual murder, was thought uh, to bring good fortune, pacified the gods, um, was used specifically during wartime to bring good fortune in war. Or sometimes it was to appease fertility gods. So the thought was I sacrifice one of my children, the fertility gods will bless me with many more. In Japan, this one was really interesting to me, in Japan, they would bury alive maidens, women, at the base of buildings as literal human pillars to protect against earthquakes and attacks. I thought that one was cool. Not for them, not for them. It wasn't cool for them, I promise. Um, (laughs) Cool, maybe not the best word. Um, There are examples, though, in Mongolian and Scythian and Egyptian and Mesoamerican cultures of human sacrifice being made at funerals because the thought was that whoever dies at the funeral is brought into the afterlife with the deceased to serve them. So servants and families would often be sacrificed at a funeral so that the deceased could bring them with them. The Celtic people, this is another, this one kind of creeped my wife out a little bit. Uh, The Celtic people would stab their victims, their people they were sacrificing with swords and then use the spasms of their muscles to divine the future. Um, which is just really cool to me. Again, not cool for them. (laughs) It's just cool to hear about. Um, In Abraham's day, human sacrifice to pagan gods was not unusual. I am going somewhere with this, I promise. Um, People all around Abraham likely were offering uh, other people and even their children as sacrifices to uh, their gods. Abraham knew his god, though, Jehovah, was different. And Jehovah, God, didn't ask for human sacrifice until he did. Um, This is something that had distinguished the worship of Jehovah from other pagan gods. And uh, Abraham's faith was tested when God had asked him to make a sacrifice that most of us would consider, all of us would consider unthinkable. Now, there's a lot of you in this room who this story is going to be very familiar to, right? You have heard this story. You could tell this story without even opening your Bible. If not, and this is the first time you're hearing this story, great. If, though, it is familiar to you, please don't get lost in the familiarity of the story. 
as I'm speaking today, we're gonna, we're gonna try to kind of focus on something different than we usually focus on with this story, because usually it's all about God provided. He spared Isaac's life, and Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac. But today, I want you to think as we are talking about this, I want you to think about what idols you have. Who or what are you sacrificing to? Yes, we're gonna talk about Abraham's faith and we're gonna talk about God's reaffirmation of the covenant, but after today, I want you to never be able to read this passage of Abraham and Isaac again without this question in mind. Where are the idols in my life? So if you have your Bible, open it up this morning to Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be on the screen. If you need a Bible, please stop by our welcome desk. Uh, We would love to give you a copy of God's word to have for your very own. So, Let's start in Genesis chapter 22, verse one. uh, And we'll, we'll pause after the first verse. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So not a whole lot there, but after these things, if you're not familiar with this story, uh, when Trent ended last week, we didn't find out, did God keep his promise to Abraham and, and Sarah to give them a child of their very own? If you remember, Abraham was 75 years old when God made that promise. Uh, and they've, if you've been waiting all week to find out, well, it's a boy. Uh, it took 25 years for the promise to be fulfilled. But at the spry age of 100, Abraham became a dad to a son by his true wife, Sarah, Uh, named Isaac. Now, in verse one, we saw that God was testing Abraham. Now, we know that this is a test because it's written from a point of view that allows us to see that it was a test. Abraham wasn't aware that God was testing him. All he knew is that God was calling him. Uh, And God tests people for a variety of reasons, but that's a sermon for another day. Uh, But it's our response to those tests that can give us some really valuable information. If you're looking for your idols, a good place to start is looking at how you respond to tests and trials and conflicts. Our response to trials, tests, and conflicts can reveal our idols. If you respond in ways that are selfish, ways that withdraw you from your church family, ways that cause you to sin, it's a pretty good chance that you found yourself an idol. You may have to do a little reflection, a little work to root it out, but I bet that you'll find one. So how did Abraham respond to God's call? Remember, he doesn't know yet that it's a test. He just knows that God is calling him at this point. We see his initial response in the rest of verse one, when Abraham says, here I am. No hesitation, no ignoring, No questioning, no complaining. If God had told him beforehand that this was a test, Abraham could have been ready, right? Prepared with that response, here I am. God says, Abraham, I say, here I am. But he didn't know ahead of time. Uh, I try not to give them very often at school, but when I do give a pop quiz, typically the response is whining or complaining or um, some fear or worry. Um, It's never, yes, give me a pop quiz. But Abraham simply says, here I am. And I really, really wish that that could, that was always my response when God calls me to do something. 
an immediate, yes, God, here I am, whatever you want me to do, lay it on me. When you hear or feel God's call, is there hesitation? Sometimes my response is just to ignore it. Maybe I didn't hear God right, I just will ignore that. Maybe you're afraid or anxious to respond to God's call because you don't think you have the ability to do what God is asking you to do. Or, me, Jacob, you're afraid of what other people will think about you uh, if you do what God's asking you to do. See, in that case, you've made an idol of yourself and your own pride. I can't lead a D group. I won't have all the right answers and people will think I'm dumb. I can't go talk to that new person in church today because I'll say something awkward and they'll think I'm crazy. If you've ever been new and I came and introduced myself and I said something awkward, I apologize. I am slightly a little crazy. Maybe the idol isn't your pride. Maybe it's your energy and your effort. Maybe what God is calling you to do just requires too much gumption, too much effort for you. Maybe it's gonna make you get out of bed early on a weekend. Maybe it's your time that you've made an idol of. My human nature tends to be pretty selfish. With my time, I like to have time at home to relax and do what I enjoy doing with Reed and my wife and to not have a busy schedule. When God's call cuts into our time working, our time playing video games, our time playing or watching sports, our sleeping in on Sunday morning, what's our response? Is it, five more minutes, God, just five more minutes. Is it, I'm too tired, God. Or is it, I'm too scared. Is it, not right now, maybe later. So Abraham passed his initial test, his initial call with flying colors, right? He says, here I am. How did he do when God presents the actual test, the actual assignment? Well, I guarantee you that it's harder than any test that you've ever taken. It's gonna be harder than the PSSAs that my fifth graders are gonna take in a few months, and it's harder than the SAT, harder than the GRE, and harder than the bar exam. Let's look at what this test was. In verse two, we find out. In verse two, he says, he said, take your son, that's God speaking to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if you're like most people, it's a little shocking. You might even think this is an absurd request, maybe even evil. God just asked Abraham to go kill his son. But remember, was Abraham always a Jew? No. Abraham had been a pagan for his whole life. So, he was surrounded by people who did this on a regular basis, right? He wasn't necessarily as shocked by this command as we undoubtedly would be now. Maybe the first thing that came to Abraham's mind, though, was the promise, that covenant that Yahweh had made with him, the promise to make him the father of many people. So it might seem strange or counterintuitive then that God would ask him to sacrifice his own son, the very son whom the promise was made about. Abraham had come to know that his God was different from the pagan gods of those around him, and he still believed that his God was different. He knew his God to be a promise-keeping God, a God that told the truth, a God that could be trusted. 
After all, God did make Sarah and Abraham parents at 90 and 100 years old, respectively. Do you believe that about your God? Do you? Do you believe that he'll keep his promises? Do you believe that your God will provide for you, no matter what your bank account says? Do you believe that God hears your prayers and answers them? Do you believe that God has a plan for your life, even when he asks you to do something that doesn't quite make sense to you? If you've seen God's faithfulness in your life, do you use that as an anchor of hope when times are tough, when you're experiencing a trial or a test? Well, let's look at Abraham's response to this request. Verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice the verbs. Rose, saddled, took, cut, went. Abraham took action to do what God had called him to do. He was certain of what God wanted him to do. There was no making an idol um, of his feelings. There was no stopping to ask questions. He didn't seek advice from somebody else who would say, no man, that's crazy. God's asking you to kill your son, don't do that. Uh, He didn't do that. He heard God, he knew what God asked him to do and he simply was doing it with no hesitation, with no hitting the snooze button. He didn't tell God to wait until he was finished with some other project, and he didn't tell God to wait until after Isaac had a child, right? He wasn't trying to help God out and say, well, yeah, I'll do that, but after Isaac has a child, because then the line can continue, right? He didn't need to help God fulfill God's promise, and he did all of it, even though he most certainly didn't feel like doing it, because Abraham wasn't walking by feeling, he was walking by faith. I'm guilty of walking by feeling, I'm guilty of making an idol of my feelings. I don't feel like it, so I don't. I don't want to do it, so I don't. I'm good at convincing myself, or maybe it's the devil, that my feelings are also God's feelings. Um, That God is using my feelings to tell me what to do, but the world also tells us that too, right? Follow your heart. Well, the Bible has something to say about that in the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 17, verse 9, uh, when Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So don't make an idol of your feelings. Uh, Please don't fall for the trap of walking by feeling instead of by faith. Let's continue the story. Where did we go from here with Abraham? Well, We're gonna read all of verses four through 10 at once, and then we'll go back and break down uh, that part of the text. So we're starting in verse number four. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. There's a few things that I want you to notice here. First in verse four, we see that this journey took how many days? Three days. It says, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes up and saw the place from afar. So at least three days, because if it's afar, maybe it's another day to get to afar. I don't know how far afar is. Uh, but again, Abraham finds himself waiting, right? A three-day journey, right? Going to do, he knows what he's going to do. In this case, it was a much shorter amount of time. It wasn't the 25 years he had to wait for the son to be born, but it certainly wasn't a waiting period that was filling him with excitement, like it was with the promise of a child. Consider what was going through Abraham's mind. Let's put ourselves in his shoes for a minute, because he had a lot of opportunity to bow down to a lot of different idols here. Uh, maybe he was thinking, there's still time to turn around. Still time to turn around. Still time to turn around. We're not there yet. Maybe he was anxious. Was he anxious? Worried? I'm going to go with yeah. He was trusting in God's promise, obviously, but he was going to kill his son. Uh, that would make any parent worried or anxious. Was he praying for God to change his mind? Please, God, change your mind. Please don't make me kill my son. Was he questioning if this was worth it? Have you ever found yourself here? I have where God's asking you to do something really hard and you wonder, is this worth it? Is my love for God, is this sacrifice that I'm making, this time I'm dedicating, this whatever it is that God's calling you to do, is it worth your relationship with him? Is it worth doing? Because sometimes it would be a whole lot easier to just not. Maybe he was questioning if I really under, did I really understand God? Is that really what he told me? Worried? Is he worried that he's really truly following God's will? Did God really tell me to do that? The one my mind keeps coming back to as a husband uh, is how in the world am I going to explain this to Sarah when I get home? Uh, honey? So, you know our son Isaac? Well, I mean... God is God, and he told me to sacrifice Isaac today. I mean, I can't disobey him, he's God, right? Probably made for an awkward dinner conversation, even after they got home, and well, if you know the rest of the story. No, I think to complete this task, Abraham's mind probably was in one place most of the time. Probably to follow through with this, Abraham had to keep coming back to that promise that God had made to him. His faith in God's covenant with him, reminding himself that God kept his first promise to give me a son. God had proven himself to Abraham to be faithful. Why should I doubt him now? I think we can see this in Abraham's dialogue with the servants and with Isaac. In verse five, it says, Abraham says to the servants, I and the boy, We'll go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham had no way of knowing for sure what was going to happen, right? All he knew is that God called him to do this, 
and he knew that God was a promise-keeping God. So he had to have known that one of two things were going to be true. Number one, he was going to go onto that mountain and kill his son Isaac, but God would raise him from the dead. Or he would get to the mountain and God wouldn't actually have him kill his son. One of those two things had to be true in order for this promise to be fulfilled to make him the father of a great nation and to bless all of the world with his line. Abraham, again, was walking by faith, acting like God was telling him the truth about this promise and about his future. We saw in verse 7, Isaac starts to kind of realize that something's not quite right here. He starts to think, as the kids would say, this is pretty sus. Um, If you have a middle school child or you teach middle schoolers like I do, that word is used on a daily basis many times. He says to his dad in verse 7, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It might have sounded something like this. Uh, Dad? Yeah, buddy. Aren't we forgetting something? Like what, kiddo? Like, I don't know. Something to actually sacrifice? Now, this likely wouldn't have been Isaac's first time making a sacrifice with Abraham. He probably knew what was supposed to happen. uh, And he probably knew that they should have had some kind of animal to be sacrificing. Uh, Abraham's response to Isaac, though, again in verse 8, shows his faith. When he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Abraham, again, was acting like God was telling the truth. But what about Isaac? What about Isaac in this situation? Verse 9. Let's look back at that. Verse 9 says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, when I was younger, I always pictured this to be Abraham picking up his little boy Isaac and laying him down like he's putting Isaac to bed, Isaac kicking and screaming and crying because my dad just bound me up and laid me on the altar. But that's a common misconception. Likely, Isaac was somewhere between his late teens and late 20s, probably about 23, 24, 25. Who was stronger? Definitely not the old guy, right? Not the 125-year-old man, right? So what does that mean about Isaac? That means that Isaac allowed his father to bind his hands and feet, likely climbing willingly onto the wood that he had just carried up the mountain, laying atop the altar that he likely just helped build, knowing what was about to happen. Now, for a lot of us, this should be giving us some, uh, some images from another story later in the Bible, right? Where else in scripture do we see a son willingly laying down his life as a sacrifice given by his father? See, this is the first clear picture we have of the gospel, crucifixion. 
Jesus, like Isaac in this story, was the willing sacrifice, willing to lay his own life down to die for the sins of the world, for your sins, for my sins. Let us definitely remember Abraham's faith here, but please let us never forget Isaac's faith as well. See, he submitted perfectly to his father, but God had not made the promise to Isaac. Isaac only knew the promise through his own father, Abraham. The promise was not to Isaac, it was about Isaac. So Isaac believed God's promise just as much, if not more, in this very instance of literal self-sacrifice than his father Abraham. He was willing to give up his life if God called him to do so. That wouldn't be necessary, though, would it? Those of you that know this story know what's about to happen. It is a prelude to and a picture of the gospel in which an atoning sacrifice was made in Isaac's place. Let's look at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham was ready and willing to plunge that knife into his son's body. We have to believe that. Abraham's faith had carried him to this point. Standing over his son, whom he loved, holding a knife, Isaac, laying there, bracing himself for what's about to happen. Every muscle in his body is tense, waiting. Both father and son probably hoping that it will be a quick end. Hopeful that it won't be too painful, but hoping even more in God's promise to make him the father of a great nation, to bless the world through his family. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God will provide. God will provide. God keeps his promises. Abraham. Abraham. Relief. Relax. Breathe. Let's look at verses 11 through 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham was, we know he was ready and willing to complete the task. He was ready and willing to give up even his son for God. The angel had to say his name twice to get his attention. Abraham was legit. He wasn't just saying, oh yeah, I'd do anything for God. He would actually do it. He wasn't just saying, I'd give up anything to follow him. He was actually going to. God demanded sacrifice, but because Abraham was truly willing, God didn't actually require it from him. You see, as is well established throughout Scripture, God sees and cares about our motivation and our heart behind the things that we're doing. Perhaps we miss out on God's blessing and promises in our life because our mouth says that we're in one place, but our heart is in another. We're saying that we would make sacrifice. Yeah, I'd give up anything to follow Jesus. Anything he wants me to give up, I'll give up to follow him. But our heart isn't really in it. And we're not actually willing to make the sacrifice God asks for. Now, 
like the pagans, we are sacrificing. We're sacrificing all right, but we're sacrificing to the wrong thing. Rather than sacrifice ourselves, our time, our talent, our money, our popularity, and our energy to Christ for his glory and his purpose, just like the pagans, we're sacrificing our relationship with God, our worship, our growing in faith, our sanctification, and yes, even our children to the idols we have in our life. Again, I ask you, you and me both, where are your idols? I recently heard a definition of an idol that kind of stuck with me because sometimes it's hard for us to think about idols in 2023 because there's not a ton of people I know that are like, you know, worshiping graven images and like literal idols, like these pagans probably were. But an idol is anything that's drawing your attention away from Christ. An idol is anything that's drawing your attention away from Christ. So, let's talk about what some of those idols might be. Maybe your idol is your bank account or your 401k. You spend your years working and hustling and scrimping and saving. Not that any of that is wrong to do, but you're so focused on your bank account or your 401k that you give minimally to the work of God or you put your work ahead of your family, ahead of your church, ahead of your God. And this one might step on some toes. Is your idol a political party or ideology? Is your idol a political party or an ideology? Maybe you've become so passionate about the views of a particular party, either side here, folks, either side, that you're willing to sacrifice your testimony and the way of Jesus for it. What might that look like in real life? Well, at the simplest level, it might look like sharing Facebook posts that are mean-spirited, mocking, hateful, spreading lies and misinformation that aren't uplifting. Maybe it's trusting a political party to save our country more than we're trusting Jesus to empower us to do his kingdom-building work that we're actually called to do, like sharing the gospel and helping and serving the poor and the marginalized. Jesus didn't call us to political power. In fact, quite the opposite. He had the opportunity to have political power. That's what they wanted him to have when he was here the first time. And he said, no, I don't want, I don't need that. He doesn't need political power on this earth. If politics are drawing you away from Christ and the way he has called you to live, the way he has called you to treat others, the way he's called you to love, the way he's called you to care for the marginalized and to share the gospel, then you've created an idol of politics or a political party in your life. Perhaps you're sacrificing more than just yourself to your idols. Perhaps you're sacrificing more than just your own time, your own money, your own testimony. Perhaps if you have them, you're sacrificing your own child to an idol. Could it be that you're sacrificing your child to the idol of a secure future? Now, hear me say this first. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be prudent and purposeful about helping your child plan for their future. I'm not saying that all, that at all. But are you sacrificing their discipleship to the idol of their future? 
That can manifest in a lot of different ways. Perhaps it's in the pressure that you put on them academically. Maybe it's a hyper-focus on sports that takes precedence over spending time at church on Sundays. Could be music, theater, dance, cheer. Don't sacrifice your child to the promise of a brighter future. Rest in God to care for them. Trust in God to provide. You see, in our country, it's really easy for us to get caught up in the idea that you need to set your child up for success that's measured by the world's standards. You have to get them into the best college. You have to help them get the best job. They have to make a certain amount of money. We make an idol of success when we measure it by the world's standards instead of God's standards. And success by God's standards looks a whole lot different than the world's standards. Our kids aren't dumb. They're not naive. If growing up their parents consistently pick sports or academics or money or success or heck, even sleeping in on Sunday morning over God, God's people, discipleship, then they're going to recognize what's truly important to you. If you want God to be important to them when they're grown, stop sacrificing them now to the idols that this world is telling you that are important. Well, Abraham and Isaac are relieved now, right? Um, Let's look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. With this, we get a beautiful picture of a really complicated, not really complicated, simple theological idea, but sounds like big theological words called substitutionary atonement. Atonement is the cleansing of sin that restores our fellowship with God. And Hebrews tells us that that requires the shedding of blood. So something had to shed blood in order for the atonement to take place. Uh, Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So without the shedding of blood, sin can't be forgiven. In this instant, though, right, it was going to be Isaac's blood who was going to be shed, but in this instant, Isaac was spared, and the ram took his place. The ram was his substitution, thus substitutionary atonement. When God promised that the world would be blessed by Abraham's family, this was what he meant. No, not the ram and Isaac in this instant. About 2,000 years later, a baby was going to be born from Abraham's line. Jesus, who took our place. You see, it should have been us upon the cross. It should have been us dying for our sin, the sin that separates us from a holy God. But Jesus, the perfect, spotless lamb, took our place. He took your place. He took my place. He was our substitute. And as our substitute, he atoned for our sins and brings us back into fellowship with God. Now, for those of you who already believe that and have accepted that for yourself, that should act as motivation for you to live your own life in continual sacrifice for Jesus, 
and his work and his kingdom. If you're here today and you've never made the decision to trust in Jesus, Jesus is atoning work for you on the cross, today's a great day to put your trust in his sacrifice for you. Let's finish the story. Verse 18, or not 18, 14. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, some of your Bibles there, mine uses the Lord will provide, but that's the Americanized um, version of the Hebrew name for God, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord truly will provide, and he's proven that over and over again to Abraham so far in his life. And here, Abraham announces it by ascribing this name, Jehovah Jireh, this name of praise to the Lord. And what's God's response besides providing the ram? Let's look at verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies, of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So, that covenant that Abraham, no doubt, held in his mind the entire journey was reaffirmed because of Abraham's faith in God. So he passed the test. He didn't withhold anything from God. He was willing to give all to serve the Lord. In application, I've got a couple of questions for you to consider. Number one, to what idols are you sacrificing the things that belong to God? Say that again. To what idols are you sacrificing the things that belong to God? And number two, what difference would it make in your life, your family, in your church, in your community, if you truly eliminated the idols that are drawing you away from Christ? Would you have more joy in your life, living and resting fully in God? The answer to that is yes. Would the people around you recognize the value of a life that puts God first above all? Are you missing out on the blessing that comes from living a life fully committed to Christ in all aspects? I'll ask the worship team, if you're not already on your way, to come up. And as we sing today, feel free to respond as God is leading you. In some churches, in my own growing up, this portion of the service would be called an altar call. And that often came, at least in my experience, with a lot of emotionally charged responses, but I think given the context of the message that it's appropriate to call the steps here an altar. Maybe you've recognized that there are idols in your life that you're sacrificing your time, your talent, your money, or maybe even if you have them, your children. Come lay your idols down on the altar. If you need to lay an idol down and rededicate something in your life to Christ today, I'd be happy to pray with you about that. If you're here and you'd say, Jacob, I'm still stuck on the part about the atonement, the sacrifice that Christ made in my place on the cross. If you would say you're not certain that you've ever put your trust in the loving sacrifice that Jesus made for you, 
we would love to talk to you about what it looks like to become a Christ follower today. So, as the worship team plays, respond as God is leading you. Listen for God's call. Find your idols, root them out. We're all giving our time and our talent and our resources and our children and our lives to something or someone. Is it God or do you have some idols? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful picture of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would show us where our idols are and that you would give us the strength and the power to lay them down and stop sacrificing to them. Pray that as we sing today, Lord, that you, your spirit would lead and that um, we would just really allow these, um, this story of Abraham and Isaac to soak into our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.
Blessings, you are sent. 